You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. My guest today is my pal. Ayelet Fishbach. She is the Jeffrey Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She's widely published and won several international awards. Um, She was one of the scientists uh, who worked on the Second Science Project. Um, Her new book is called Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Ayelet Fishbach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, one of the criticisms I have about many business books is that in the attempt to offer actionable steps to improve things like people's motivation or like decision-making, the authors don't acknowledge the complexity that comes with ever-shifting contexts. And your book is all about this, which I absolutely love. And, And towards the end of it, you write, quote, so you're less known than you think, and you know less than you assume. You care more about feeling known than about knowing, and you didn't know this about yourself until now. The implications are that we should all be more modest in how much knowledge we assume exists in any relationship and pay special attention to the knowing the people in our lives to be able to support their goals and maintain close relationships, end quote. And that feels like this wonderful call for humble curiosity, right? Uh, yeah, and as you are reading it, I'm realizing that this sentence is probably too long. But I, <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great. There's a couple sentences in there. <laughs> I, uh, I I did uh, mean it. Uh, we uh, we should acknowledge that uh, our knowledge is is limited. That we make assumptions about uh, uh, the people around us, and uh, and make this sentence is when I discuss how others help our motivations, how they, they support us uh, in our motivations, and it, often our perception of others. Uh, uh, if I think that uh, my my spouse or my, my children uh, would like me to do well in my career, uh, then I will feel supported. Uh, whether this is what they actually want for me, uh, <laughs> you need to ask them. <laughs> I, yeah. I think they do, but you know, mm-hmm. I uh, you you see the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You open the book by talking about 23 climbers 
who arrived at the summit of Mount Everest in May of 1966. Can you tell us that story and how it applies to goal setting? Yes. So I purposely chose to, to start the book with a story about these climbers who are, who are trying to get to the summit of Mount Everest. And, and I think that this really illustrates the complexity in, uh, uh, in, in setting goals. This is a great goal. Okay? It has all the elements for a successful goal. It's very specific. Okay? You know whether you made it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's something that uh, is the goal itself. It's not a means to a goal. Okay? No one climb Mount Everest because they want to then climb another mountain. Okay? It, it's the thing itself. There are great incentives for doing that. You will be a hero in your community uh, if you are, if you manage to do it. Uh, so, so everything works. It's intrinsically a motivating uh, uh, goal. Uh, and because this goal is so motivating, uh, many people pay with their lives. Okay. Uh, that is, uh, many people get so committed to, to this goal that uh, uh, they, they are willing to take unnecessary uh, risk uh, in this particular story. This is a, a group of uh, mountaineers uh, who were uh, trying to get to the summit when uh, the weather uh, was just not right for it. And the thing is that it's actually easier to get to the top of Mount Everest than to get back down. And so they uh, got stuck on the way back uh, to the, their camp and uh, 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 and several people uh, died. It was the, the worst uh, uh, day uh, on Mount Everest, uh, which suggests that you can have a goal that really motivates you and nevertheless will be so wrong for you. Yeah, and, and the book talks about this a lot, that um, there there's... There's almost a yin, yin and yang with everything uh, in, in terms of, you know, there's the sometimes negativity and, and positivity that can be effective in terms of goal setting. But there's what I love is how you sort of break it apart. And one of the things you, you say, uh, you, you talk about setting goals and not means, uh, which is a really important distinction and reminds me, this is the second time I brought this up in consecutive pods, but that old Buddhist thing of the finger pointing at the moon and whether you're worshiping the moon or the finger. Um, so talk to us a bit about uh, the setting goals and not means. I, I like that uh, metaphor. Uh, mm-hmm. we, uh, we set means when uh, we... We want to do something not for the sake of doing it, but for the sake of achieving the thing that comes later. Okay. So we, uh, we set a means when we say, uh, my uh, goal is to apply for a job. Okay. Uh, my goal is to find a job, to have a successful uh, career or at least a decent uh, career. Uh, but if I set it too narrowly on, on applying to a job, I might find myself not motivated enough. You know, people might set a goal to uh, uh, to save money, and it's often more encouraging to think about what I'm going to do with that money that I save. Okay, uh, what is uh, the ultimate thing that I'm trying to achieve with the action? That is more motivating than thinking about doing the action itself. And I thought it was interesting too when you talk about sometimes this idea of setting somewhat abstract goals, um, yeah. which kind of lead you to maybe the, the, the bigger purpose or the bigger idea uh, behind it. Of course, not going so abstract that you don't know what you're actually going for. Exactly. So I, I don't suggest so ab- abstract goals like, you know, like be happy that you don't really know what to do. Okay, what do I do in order to be happy? But sufficiently abstract or as abstract as you can be, 
while you can still see the action that, that gets you there. And so we know that when people set abstract goals, they are more motivated to pursue them. We know that even an abstract mindset helps people achieve their, uh, their goals. And uh, there is great work by Yaakov uh, uh, Trope and Ken Fujita and Neil Lieberman showing that just asking people many questions about why Okay, so Kelly, tell me why do you do something? And then you say, and then I say, why? why? And then you say whatever you said, mm-hmm. and I say, why again? And like just answering five times this why question increases people's motivation to do whatever they, they need to do. Okay, they, they are just more willing to act when they are going abstract and they compare it to asking many questions about how. So you tell me that you are doing a podcast and instead of asking you why you are doing this, podcast i'm asking you how do you do it and whatever you say ask how again and again and that that narrows down that makes people more concrete and less motivated um you talk about um uh thought suppression and a particular study that daniel uh wegnar did and i i think that's a that's a great study and i love you to talk about it here <laughs> yeah this is uh, uh uh, the study uh, about thought suppression and uh, getting people not to think about something. Now, I generally don't support avoidance or do not goals uh, because I, I think that it's really hard to keep your stamina when your your goal is to avoid something. And the study of thought suppression uh, basically asks people not to think about white bears. Okay, now. Mm-hmm. As soon as I ask not to think about white bears, it, it's like, you know, asking someone not to think about their ex. There is nothing else that they think about. Right? Yes. Like that. Really, the, the instruction not to do something, how do I know that I am not doing it? The only way is to check whether I'm doing it. And by this brings this to mind. Okay, I, it's why many uh, diets fail when you think about, oh, I should really not eat that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, how do you know that you don't eat that? Well, you need to think about it, right? And then it brings it to mind and, and it, it will fail. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, and this has actually come up in a couple previous conversations, uh, you say in the, in the book that motivation science teaches us that our feelings and emotions are highly instrumental. Uh, and Annie Murphy Paul has written a beautiful book called The Extended Mind, which is, uh, and you're nodding your head, so you must have know it. Yeah. But the, the, this idea of um, the the way we get thinking wrong and that we don't take into account our, our bodies and, and our emotions and our feelings. And it's so interesting that it ends up in science that needs to tell us that, no, 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 emotions play a, a part and an important part in all of this stuff that we're talking about. Yes. Yeah, so in motivation science, we often see that emotions give us feedback. How, how do you know how well you're doing? Well, you see how you feel about your goal. Okay. Do, do you feel good? That means that you're doing well. Do you feel bad? That means that you, you don't do well. And so that, you know, the advice to uh, put your feelings aside, okay, presumably to be rational and, and not take your feelings into account uh, by the research in, in motivation, that's completely false because if you don't pay attention to how you feel, how will you know how well you are doing? Saying that, the way we make sense of our feelings matter, and this is where the, the cognition comes to mind. So if you, you feel bad, what does that mean to you? Okay, Does it mean that you are not working hard enough or does it mean that you don't stand a chance? Probably the former is better for your motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
You talk also about the importance of putting a number on it. And you write, quote, as a rule, goals like recipes work best if you list the exact quantities entire goal to a numerical target. Uh, also, just a point of, of fact, many, many food references in this book. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe that's a COVID times. There's a lot of cooking in the house. I'm not going out. I just noticed this. So, uh, I, Yeah. I, I like to talk about food more than to make it. You know, I, I, I watch cooking shows. I don't actually uh, bake so much, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, yes, you should uh, put a number. Um, and the, the reason is that these numbers uh, end up being uh, highly uh, motivating. So you, if you set your goal as, let's say, uh, walk uh, 10,000 steps a day, you would be disappointed if you are 100 steps below, which means that you're yeah. going to do this extra effort. And the, 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 one of the studies that I refer to is with marathon runners. And this study looked at the, the times that it takes about 10 million marathon runners to finish the race. There are many more people that are finishing the race just under four hours. That is in three hours and 59 minutes than just above four hours, like four hours in, in one minute, which means the people that set their goal at four hours are really trying hard to uh, to make it. Uh, so yeah, a, a number is, uh, is is useful. It uh, keeps you going when you're kind of tired. It also has to be measurable. And I thought it was kind of fascinating, another food thing where you talk about uh, the metrics that we currently use for foods provide an example of uh, of numbers that uh, actually don't work really well because they're not actionable. Can you talk about that? Uh, yes. So I talk about uh, uh, calories. Uh, we, <laughs> we like to measure calories. And, you know, calories is just like one line on you know, that you have on, on the food label. Actually, almost everything on the food la- label is is terrible in terms of trying to monitor your food consumption using this label. Okay, It's a bunch of numbers that are really hard to translate into should I eat it? And if I eat it, how much? Okay, calories is very abstract construct. People don't really know what it means, how much they should eat, what to do with this. Uh, in, uh, in, in Israel, for example, they try to uh, mark food with uh, uh, just a red sticker that says this food should be avoided kind of like this is dangerous hmm. for you. Wow. <laughs> and now every like, you know, if you just buy a cookie box, you have this red box. And it's easy because, you know, well, of course, I'm going to eat cookies in my life. But when I do this, pay attention. Okay, This is not good for you as opposed to uh, a bag of uh, carrots that doesn't have such mark. Uh, My doctor one time, I love bagels. And my doctor goes, I love them too. But just know that when you're eating a bagel, it's like you're eating a giant slice of cake. And, and I, I can't get that picture out of my, it's not that I don't eat bagels anymore, but I'm, I am, I'm not going to have them all week, you know, like, cause I, cause I just think about that. And that's a metaphor that really worked for me. Um, yeah, you also, I love ta- it. yeah, no, it's yeah. good. You also talk about incentives and you introduce us to the Cobra effect. Um, tell us what the Cobra effect is. Uh, yes. So uh, the Cobra effect is, uh, is, actually a name for an effect that started with no cobras. Okay? It, uh, it, it happened uh, uh, when French colonials uh, uh, 
we are trying to uh, uh, rebuild the city of Hanoi, and they they kind of messed up the sewage system, and as a result, there were many rats running the streets of Hanoi. And they had the idea to create a bounty system by which they are going to pay people one cent per a dead uh, rat. Okay? They mm-hmm. were very uh, specific. They asked to bring the tail of the rat and they will pay a cent per uh, tail. Uh, well, if you uh, think about what this incentive system does, it incentivizes people to have dead rats. And the way to have a dead rat is first to have a live rat. And so... What people in Hanoi did was breeding rats. Okay, and, you know, the more rats you have, the more you can make money of, of these rats. At one point, they were just cutting the tail because why would you kill a healthy rat uh, mm-hmm. when you just need the tail uh, to get the money? Uh, this became the cobra effect after another program like that in uh, India, where people were paid for uh, uh, dead uh, cobras, and again, the only way to get a dead cobra. Uh, is by first having a live uh, uh, cobra. Uh, and, and so I tell these uh, uh, stories uh, not to say that incentives don't work, actually to say that incentives work very well. They're going to get people to breed uh, rats and, uh, and raise cobras, uh, and we should be careful with what we incentivize. Um, you, you say also in this chapter, when, when it comes to rewarding a behavior, less is more. I, I think it would be intuitive to people to think that the opposite would be true. So why, why is less more? Uh, let me uh, tell you about a, a study that we uh, ran uh, uh, here in uh, the city of Chicago. Uh, we uh, told young children, they were between three and five, that certain foods uh, will make them either stronger or uh, smarter. Okay, so basically, they read. We read a story for them about a child that eats crackers or, or carrots, and that makes her smart or makes her strong. And then we looked at whether they they want to eat these snacks. And we found that kids are less likely to eat a snack when they hear that this is good for them, that that will make them stronger and and, and healthy and and, and smart. Uh, Basically, getting this incentive made them conclude that the food is not very tasty. Yes. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, they... They're smart. Actually, when you ask parents, uh, uh, do you ever tell your child that they should eat something because it's good for them? Parents say, oh, yeah, all the time. And then you ask parents, does it work? And they say, oh, never. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So, so we, we kind of know that it doesn't work, but we are tempted to add these incentives. The reason that in adding incentives, too many incentives often doesn't work is that the person concludes that, I guess there was no good reason to do this or to eat this, uh, which is why the incentive was added. And uh, you you are losing the connection between the original goal uh, and the the action or the food. When my kids were little and we wanted them to eat their vegetables, uh, we would often say, actually, when you eat them, your eyesight improves just every vegetable you eat. And then we would walk like four feet away and hold up a couple fingers and we'd be amazed that they, they're like, you can see that. <laughs> and so we gamified it, uh, which I think kind of helped it in, in terms of them doing it. Um, it didn't really work in the long run, but it did for a little bit. Um, yeah, they were probably entertained. They wanted you to like, do the show, right? 
yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, which which doesn't seem surprising in my household. Um, I, I was you, you say that intrinsic motivation is the least understood concept in motivation science. Uh, why is that? Why is it the least understood? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I know it is the least understood, but why? Partially because there was some historical mistake in our communication of this concept. Mm. Uh, we we started uh, studying intrinsic motivation as, as a field with the observation that animals will walk the maze even when they don't expect any prize. Okay, and mm-hmm. the, the idea was that rats are curious. Okay, and they're just going to explore their environment and, and therefore as a field for a while, we thought that intrinsic motivation means being curious and it's not just being curious. Uh, partially because we often think about intrinsic and ad- as anything that is not incentivized. And so if you're doing something because it's good for you, but I'm not paying you to do this, like a medical checkup, you might say that you are intrinsically motivated to check your body. Uh, but this is actually not what intrinsic motivation means. Uh, what intrinsic motivation means in psychology uh, is that you do the thing for the sake of doing it. Okay? You, you gain the, the goal from performing the activity. Uh, there is a not much separation in your mind between doing something and receiving the benefits from uh, doing it. And then, of course, we look at this as, as a, a continuum such that some activities are more intrinsically motivating than others. And you know, the more you, you like your job, the more you are intrinsically uh, motivated to, to do your job, uh, you will persist on it longer. You will do a better job, even though for most of us, our job is never completely intrinsically motivating. Like I, I can say that I'm doing it because I want to get paid by the end of the month. So I'm not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but to the extent that I do some of it for the sake of doing it, I am more intrinsically uh, motivated. Does this make sense? Yeah. Um, uh, so then explain to me how Pokemon Go uh, is sh- shows up in a chapter about intrinsic motivation. <laughs> okay. And so we know that we need to be physically active. Okay, we, we understand that. We also understand mm-hmm. that the, the, the people that we are responsible for uh, need to be uh, physically uh, active. And we can be physically active in a way that, that's fun, that's engaging. Okay? We might play frisbee with friends and we just like doing it. Okay? We might uh, uh, go on a hike and we enjoy it. And, uh, uh, and, and we might go out to catch Pokemons. Okay, and mm-hmm. uh, when Pokemon Go became a, a thing a, a few years ago, uh, people just went out to look for, for Pokemons. They were not going out because they needed to get to 10,000 steps. They wanted to find these Pokemons. And as someone who spent quite some time with my son searching for these Pokemons, I know that we got a lot of exercise, which was just for the sake of playing the game, not for the, the sake of being healthy, some future time. Yeah, that's interesting. And that that relates to what you were saying before about uh, uh, intrinsic motivation being sort of the the least studied because that that, that wouldn't, we were thinking opposite before that you would really have this passion. It's not passion, but it does end up 
working. Um, you spent mandatory time in the Israeli equivalent of the NSA, and, and I'm curious what that time taught you about motivation and progress. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I uh, spent two years uh, in uh, the Israel uh, Israeli military. Uh, that was uh, required for someone growing up in Israel. I didn't like my job very much. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't very interesting job, and I'm really being polite about uh, the, the way I state this. It uh, was boring. Uh, and I uh, uh, was very busy monitoring my progress. Okay, and uh, also like every six months I had a break. So like, I had a couple of weeks, and I and then I really monitored my time toward it. And I was uh, always uh, monitoring my time uh, forward looking. I was looking at how much is still left for me before the, the next time off. Uh, and then eventually before I, I, I finish this and can uh, go and, and do what's interesting for me in my life. Uh, and, and as a motivation scientist, now I, I know that uh, given how uh, uh, uninterested I was and how low my commitment was, it was probably more effective to look back. So I would advise the, uh, the young me to look back and say, hey, you've been here already for like two months and then like four months and you're already making progress. And we find that when people look back, in particular for goals that they are struggling pursuing, that increases their commitment. That makes it easier to, uh, to move on. That's interesting. Um, the other thing that kind of uh, blew me away in, in this chapter was when you talk about Le- uh, Leon Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory, um, which feels like the theory of the moment of the world that you and I live in right now in the United States of America. Can you talk to us about that? Uh, I'm interested in, in what uh, you mean by uh, uh, the, the world in which we live in. Uh, cognitive dissonance theory uh, refers to how people learn about their commitment, learn about what they care for uh, based on, on what they did in the past. And often they, they look back and say, yeah, I did that. And I'm not really sure why I did that. Okay, Maybe uh, it doesn't quite fit in how I think about myself. Well, I guess I should change how I think about myself. Uh, and this is relevant for motivation because often when we, we look back, we learn what we care for. We learn what, we, what goals we are committed to. Uh, at the current time, I would say that I often advise people that get uh, – uh, uh, desperate with, with COVID and, and all these closures. Uh, look back, see you've been doing it for a while. Uh, uh, you, you, you've been, uh, you survived it so far. Uh, it's working for you what uh, what you're doing. And, and with this, increase their, their commitments. There's something about looking back at something that you did, even if you're not sure why you did this, that helps you realize, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I care about it. I guess I'm I'm committed. So this idea around changing our beliefs to match our behaviors, to me, when I talk about the world we live in, it, it, that, that is what's going on politically right now. It's what's going on culturally. It's what's going on. Like, we've been getting vaccinated, all of us, forever. And then suddenly vaccines are bad. Uh, and then that, that mean, then I politicize it and I make it part of a, a whole other thing that is unrelated. And it's just it just feels like this is, and I don't know if it's because of social media or other things, but it's like, Something that's always existed, we always understand that in the human condition, but now it seems supercharged in a way that I, I've never experienced in my lifetime. 
Yes, I, I agree. And uh, this is unfortunate. And the problem is that uh, the, the more we, um, no, we, we say that the more we make it a political issue, the more each uh, person feels that they need to, to justify this, like that my decision about my vaccination needs to fit the, the party uh, to which I voted in, in the election, which is, of course, uh, why should these things uh, be in my, say, mental uh, 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 or like, what, what does this mean? Like, uh, uh, but um, uh, th- this is cognitive dissonance. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I voted for uh, someone. Actually, this guy got vaccinated and supports vaccination. Not that I personally voted for him, but nevertheless, like, I, I, I supported for some people. I supported the leader that says that uh, vaccinations are bad, and therefore I should or think that vaccination, uh, vaccinations are bad. Uh, people see consistency uh, often uh, uh, where they, they shouldn't. <laughs> yes. That, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, we're coming close to the end, but a couple more things I want to talk to you about before we ask you for a yes and story. Yeah. Um, you tell the story of John Edmund Carrick, I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly, who flipped a coin 10,000 times providing a demonstration of the law of large numbers. Uh, but there was other stuff going on in terms of that, which seemed very close to you counting off the days of your time serving yeah. the Israeli army. Yes, I'm telling the, uh, that story uh, as a story of how to uh, stay patient. And uh, mm-hmm. this is uh, probably also something that is now on, on many people's minds. How, how do we wait? Okay, How do we stay yeah. patient as uh, um, as maybe we, we need to postpone seeing certain people, we need to postpone our vacation, uh, even uh, we need to wait for all these products that are being delayed uh, by, uh, uh, by by the products being shipped too slowly. Uh, and one of the, the simple tricks for patients is just do something else, okay? just get your mind off it. Uh, what I say is that this will mainly help you if the uh, the problem is that you can't help yourself. Okay, and there are different barriers to be patient. One is that you you just don't have the willpower. You just can't help yourself, and then distractions help. Mm-hmm. The other barrier is that maybe you don't value enough what you are waiting for. And so we, we find that people are more patient when they value what they are waiting for. People are more patient for uh, um no, uh, uh, the the new iPhone. If they are uh, uh, people who really like iPhones, okay. My husband is much more patient waiting for coffee than I do because he really appreciates good coffee. Where for me, coffee is coffee. You know, just get the first mm-hmm. one that comes around, and that's fine. Uh, and so, when the barrier is that you are not sure that what what you are waiting for is is sufficiently valuable. Then often it's not about distracting, it's about reminding you that this is important, that this is something that uh, that you care for. Uh, often uh, we design strategies that help us wait by increasing the value of what we are waiting for. Um, you also talk about the importance of a shared reality uh, in terms of uh, motivation for, and that's how we rely on other other people to help us for that. And you actually say in in the book that we're all parts of a whole. And I couldn't remember whether we ever did that exercise, improv exercise for you, parts of a whole. Did you ever do that for you? I I don't think so. Let's I say don't think when, so. Yeah, when I did research. Uh, we, with you guys, it was with the take focus. Uh, 
uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's the give and take. Yeah, give and take focus. So parts of a whole is interesting. It's it's an exercise by file Spolin and where one person comes out and starts doing an action and consecutively everyone joins until they're all, they're making something together. So um, uh, Anne was just featured in a documentary about Viola Spolin and that's one of the exercises she leads and, and they, uh, the first person comes out and they're making sort of this uh, movement with their, with their arms and it turns out that they, they're making a giant uh, lizard uh, mm-hmm. together. Uh, and it's a great ex- exercise to sort of uh, speak to flow um, and, and sort of gr- what, what groups can do that individuals cannot do with the whole group. Um, but yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting in that, in that context. I, I love that. Uh, so, you know, people support our goals in uh, like generally in, in two ways. Okay. One way is that we do things together and we you know basically everything that's really important we do with another person or, or other people, right? So you, mm-hmm. you, you you run the second city with other people. Okay, mm-hmm. I do my research with other co-authors. You start a family with a, another person. Uh, we, we do things as a as a city, okay, as a state, as, as a country. And then the other way is that we inspire each other with our presence. Okay, and, mm-hmm. and so I might support your goal just by wanting you to be successful. Okay, yeah, uh, you might help me by expecting me to to do great things, and and this is where we look at how role models work, how bringing people that want you to be successful is uh, uh, is helping people. Uh, before I ask you for your yes and story, can we talk about the paper that uh, is getting published soon? It's called "Motivating Personal Growth by Seeking Discomfort," and you did that with Caitlin Woolley. Yeah, I was, you know, starting to worry that you'll never ask Kelly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I saved the best for last because I we, value it yeah, so much. Yeah, thank you. We are so grateful for our collaboration with you. Uh, this is a, a study in which we uh, uh, basically brought people to take to, to the classes that they, that you guys run, okay, uh, yep. the Second City uh, training, and uh, uh, ask them to uh, feel uncomfortable. Okay, mm-hmm. and the, the idea was that, uh, and these are beginners. Okay, so I bet you know the people that have been doing improv for improv for a while, they 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 might enjoy it, like from the the second that they are in. But people who just started, what they feel is uncomfortable, and and mm-hmm. I know because you know as as we were starting this collaboration, I uh, tried to do improv and mainly felt embarrassed. Okay, and. Uh, <laughs> And what we found is that when we tell people your goal is to feel uncomfortable, they are much more engaged. Okay? Yeah. They are uh, taking focus for a longer uh, time. Uh, they, you know, when the focus is on them, they might do something more special. They might do a little dance instead of just uh, uh, walk around. Uh, they are more willing to do things. Uh, we started with improv. We then saw that people are also more willing to read upsetting news, uh, mm-hmm. to, to write about negative emotions when we tell them your goal is to feel uncomfortable. And what we realize that is going on is that feeling un- uncomfortable is immediate. Okay, so like yeah. I know I feel uncomfortable and I know that this is working. Okay, it's the kind of like that, you know, it's the sweat that you feel while you exercise that tells you your exercise is working, okay? you're, you're doing something right. And for many things, really, you start by acknowledging that this is working for you, that there is something that happens immediately that might be uncomfortable, and that if you just continue doing it, that will translate into 
personal growth and into feeling good about what you do. Presumably, in the long run, you do something because it makes you feel good. But the way to get there is often by noticing that like, this immediate discomfort that is a sign that, that this is working. Is that, is that also the same thing when you talk about like um, mouthwash or cough syrup that tastes bad, that feels like, oh, that means it's working? <laughs> yeah. That, well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, in the sense that, you, again, like you get this immediate feeling that, is, that this is working. Uh, but uh, no, in the sense that I bring this as an example, that, that sometimes we choose actions that help some goals and hurts other goals because we tend to naively believe that if something undermines some goals, then it's probably really, really good for the goals that it helps. Mm. Okay? And, <laughs> and so, you know, this is like people choosing a, a, a healthy food that's not tasty because they think that this must be healthier because they don't like it. Okay? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a mistake, right? Not always the case, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the study was so interesting. We were talking about it at Second City when when I was showing it to people about this idea around personal growth. And we know the bulk of the people who come to take classes at Second City are not looking to get onto Saturday Night Live or even on the stage at Second City. They're there because of a breakup. They're there because of, you know, some hole in, in their life. They're like trying this out. And I think the, because improvisation normalizes um, uh, failure um, and really sort of gets you out of your shame brain. Like, like that, 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 that overwhelmingly becomes a thing that's like, Oh, that's a better place to be when, when I'm yeah. going to be doing things in the rest of my, my, my world. And, and so I, I, I think the immense value is for people to take that stuff and not just apply it theatrically, but apply it to their day-to-day life. I, I completely agree. And I think, I think that this is a great example for something that you will learn to like, but you might not like it in the first 10 seconds. Okay? And, and many goals, like eventually what predicts adherence to goals is that we like them. We, we are excited about doing it. Okay? It feels good. But often you need to practice. You need to give it some time before it starts feeling good. And it, for me, at least, that was with, with improv. You know, I'm an academic. When I write a sentence, I like to erase it and then write it again, okay, yeah. and, and then switch the words so that it's exactly right. And this is really not how you act in improv. So uh, it's from personal experience. Like You just need to get over this uh, uh, immediate discomfort. Take it as a sign that you are growing, and, and then you'll grow. Uh, I was going to tell you to uh, your work and Nick's work and, and the, all the stuff that we did was immensely helpful to me uh, at the beginning of COVID because I was really f- focusing on my health and I ended up creating um, all basically systems based on your work around. So I would work out every day. So uh, I set the alarm for five o'clock every morning, but I, I laid out all my workout clothes. So they were like on the steps there. I rewarded myself by listening to my favorite podcasts. Um, and then I would say I would have breakfast right after and coffee and, and all that stuff. So, and, and then, and then, it, and then I set a number, which is I, I need, I want to get down to 190 pounds and I did. Um, and so I had my number and then, and it, it was, and actually now it's routine. Like if I don't do it, it feels weird. 
Great. Yeah. So so now it's a habit and now it feels good immediately. I, yeah. Now it feels yeah. good immediately. And, and yeah. yeah. So, um, all right. So we always right. ask our guests to end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. Uh, I, so I think that I tend to say yes to things. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, it, it, and many of the things that I, I do, it's only because I have the default of, yes, why not? Let's, let's try that. But for uh, yes, and I, um, I, I, I will choose my immigration uh, story. Uh, mm-hmm. So when someone suggests you, Kelly, to, uh, to leave your country and go live somewhere else where you don't understand the culture and also don't speak the language very well, I would say your default should be no. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, uh, my, my husband suggested that. And, uh, you know, I think yeah, it will be fun to, to have a postdoc in, in Maryland. And so I say, yeah. Uh, uh, Yes, and we are going to be in Maryland for two years, and uh, and basically I uh, I got the Fulbright Fellowship that was for two years, and after that you have to, to go back to to Israel, and uh, and that was my uh, yes, sure, let's uh, uh, let's move to the U.S. and we are going to do it for two years, and then and then we will uh, come back. Uh, we never did that, and so now the, the mm-hmm. maybe the story doesn't work. I stayed here. Okay, my preferences changed. <laughs> No, I think it's a perfect story because in in you you did yes and um and then you allowed the, it to change, which is that 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 you because you were open to the experience and and then found new possibility. Uh, yes, so so this is my uh, uh, yes uh, and story. I I I, I tend to say uh, uh, yes, and I and I really I I love your. Uh, your your book and your work with uh, uh, yes and it uh, uh, actually changed the conversation in uh, my family a few years ago when we learned about it. Oh, good, good. <laughs> uh, well, well, uh, the new book is is in the works right now. Um, your book is called "Get It Done: Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation." Ayelet, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, and I uh, look forward to reading your book. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. Our producer and editor is Ashley Byhun, and we are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.